And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Joseph Bubolo. He is an oncology pharmacotherapy specialist with OHSU and an assistant professor of medicine with the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He earned his PharmD from the University of Washington. And Dr. Bubolo maintains a clinical practice in oncology, as well as administrative responsibilities in patient safety and clinical pharmacy services, as well as research in supportive care for oncology patients. He is a sought after teacher, and we are delighted to have him join us today. Thank you, Dr. Bubolo. I will turn it over to you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, today's topic, uh, as you see, is uh, cannabis products and there is there a role for them in chronic pain management? Um, briefly, let's see here. Uh, the objectives today are to look at a brief history and we're going to review the current knowledge of cannabis pharmacology, going to dip into the literature around the use for pain, and then really uh, spend most of our time on the clinical impact, uh, both positive and negative, that we'll see with uh, cannabis therapies. Briefly, there is evidence that uh, around, somewhere around 600 BCE uh, in China that cannabis was already in use as a medicinal product. If we fast forward then to the 1800s when it uh, became widely utilized in the United States for a variety of medicinal purposes, uh, followed by into the early 1900s where um, uh, Mexican Revolution led to uh, immigration into the U.S. where a lot of uh, cannabis came with that immigration. Uh, around the time of the Depression, there was a lot of social unrest and uh, with uh, resentment against immigrants who were competing for jobs and uh, public fear of cannabis as an intoxicant. This was followed by a, a variety of uh, taxation acts and uh, 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 legislation which cr criminalized uh, marijuana and its associated products. And finally, in 1970, it was made a class one, schedule one uh, controlled substance, which means it really had no uh, medical medicinal use. Looking specifically at the United States, uh, during the um, 1800s into the early 1900s, this was actually the among the top three most prescribed agents in the US. There are things for labor pain, nausea, rheumatism, and uh, with the criminalization, uh, as, as I mentioned, it became Schedule 1 in 70. And then in 2018, we had our first non-synthetic uh, cannabis product approved as an Epidiolex for um, uh, several different pediatric seizure disorders. Uh, cannabis itself is a cannabis sativa. Uh, it's a flowering herbal plant. There are both the indica and ruderalis species that are used medicinally as well. While originating in Asia, as uh, you know, there historically, it's 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 a weed and it grows throughout the world um, pretty avidly. Uh, currently, uh, it's approved in uh, 36 states plus uh, the District of Columbia. I, this it changes so often that I just have been sticking with greater than 30 on this slide. Uh, as of the last election, uh, 14 states also allow a low delta 9 THC. Um, uh, a high cannabidiol product that for uh, medicine, uh, medical reasons that qualify uh, differently actually in each state. The uh, cannabinoid receptors, uh, first one, the CB1, was identified in 1988. This is uh, sprinkled throughout the central nervous system and peripheral nerves. And this is the receptor that is uh, responsible for the classic marijuana-like effects 
uh, on both psyche and circulation. The CB2 was identified in 1993. Uh, this is uh, really some, located around within B lymphocytes and natural killer cells and has a possible role in immunity uh, poorly identified at this time. Most of the emphasis has been on the uh, psyche or psychic effects of cannabis. We do have a, a endocannabinoid system, so we produce our own uh, uh, ligands for the CB1 and CB2 receptors. Uh, from and this is anandamide and two arachidonylglycerol. These are endorphin-like effects that last just a few minutes, somewhere maybe as many as 15, uh, depending on how you measure it. Uh, there and there are also endocannabinoids found in some other products, uh, such as milk and uh, chocolate. While we focus on the CB1 and CB2 receptors, there are many other receptor complexes that are impacted by the endocannabinoid system, which is highly integrated throughout our, the, the human body and, and used in both our development and uh, as for a variety of other uh, purposes. So while we focus on CB1 and CB2, it, the interaction of, of cannabinoids is so extensive that it is hard to separate it out from a lot of these other receptors that may um, be mediating effects that we're really not uh, characterizing. When we look at the uh, cannabis and how it comes from the plant, uh, they all start out in the uh, acid form um, and through uh, both time and heat, um, they are formed into the uh, final products so of delta-9 THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, cannabidiol, cannabichromine, if it actually stays in the plant longer, so the uh, people who are growing it are going to harvest at specific times to maximize the cannabinoid that they're after, you actually get other uh, cannabinoids over time as well. The compounds that are primarily uh, pulled from the uh, cannabis plant, the marijuana plant, are uh, terpenes, which are uh, aromatic chemicals that are found in um, throughout all kinds of flora. And these are the things that give them their specific odor. And so the uh, uh, unique aroma and flavor of cannabis, which is very skunky actually, um, comes mostly from terpenes. Flavonoids are co commonly found throughout a variety of plants and they are known mostly for their anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. And while these are thought to be uh, beneficial, um, it's unclear what they do as part of the any medicinal effect that's coming from cannabis. Mostly the phytocannabinoids have been fo focused on. These are highly concentrated in the female flowers, and those, these are the ones that are going to bind to your CB1 receptor, CB2 receptors, and actually alter the neurotransmitter release from those uh, receptor-associated um, areas in the body. So when we look at the most common cannabinoids in use, uh, we have delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinoids, hydrocannabinol, commonly known as THC. This is the major psychoactive component. Uh, and originally uh, it was somewhere between a half percent and five or six percent um, through um, avid cultivation throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s um, of the last decade, of the last century. Um, we now have commonly cultivars that are over 20 percent. And uh, actually, if you look at what's around Portland, uh, most of them are over 30% if they're being used for recreational purposes. Cannabidiol uh, it actually lacks psychoactive effects. It's thought to be possibly anxiolytic and, and through this mechanism possibly beneficial for PTSD. 
however, um, it has uh, low to no affinity for CB1 and CB2 receptors, but it is known to modulate the uh, action of and exposure of THC at these receptors. Uh, overall, there's about 140 different cannabinoids um, and overall uh, somewhere between 300 and 400 different compounds when you look at flavonoids and uh, terpenes as well. And the profile is going to be different based on each each plant, each cultivar that is uh, it is extracted from. So kind of in summary, uh, the light blue is your CB1 receptors focused mainly in the central nervous system as well as in the peripheral nervous system. CB2s are uh, in lymph nodes and other um, immune related organs uh, and just the CBD once again doesn't really impact either one but seems to modulate how other cannabinoids impact. So if we look at it, the pharmacology uh, oral uh, THC actually I think I'm going to start with the inhaled uh, this is kind of the classic um, mechanism and somewhere around a third of what is inhaled is is absorbed. So when you're looking whether it be THC or CBD, if someone is smoking it, um, usually via a cigarette form, uh, about a third of that is going to be absorbed. Um, if you then compare that to the oral uh, cannabis products, it's about um, a third less absorbed. And this is thought to be primarily due to the first pass effect going through the liver, as well as a certain amount of degradation uh, from stomach acid. Uh, the fed state improves absorption um, for uh, natural cannabis products just as it is for the synthetics. So generally taking them with food if you're going to take an oral is recommended. Uh, CBD and THC are, are uh, quite similar. Uh, the onset is in, in minutes, usually within 10 minutes for inhaled. Um, however, due to the first pass effect and the different um, differential effects of the uh, for of uh, stomach acid and people's GI systems, uh, you can have somewhere around uh, one to two hours as the normal time to be a start feeling effects with two to four being the peak as opposed to 10 minutes with the inhaled. So the uh, inhaled is a much more reliable, much more rapid um, form. However, you do have all the associated problems uh, with smoking something. Uh, duration uh, somewhere between uh, 45 and minutes and three hours for the inhaled. Uh, generally, it's somewhere between three and eight hours for the oral, so quite different. So the um, patient who is uh, using something medicinally uh, and expecting effect uh, rapidly, especially if they're used to using an inhaled product and switch to an oral, um, can be quite uh, disappointed that they're that they're not uh, getting whatever their normal effect is. Distribution is pretty widely um, bound to plasma proteins. There's about 10% that is going to be bound to red cells, and actually about 1% of the serum concentration gets to the brain. We do know that it does cross the placenta. It is found in breast milk. So uh, yeah, pregnant or uh, lactating uh, females um, are going to give this to the, to the baby. Uh, oils and tinctures are absorbed, uh, but we have actually no pharmacokinetic parameters at this time. Uh, it's a very lipophilic compound and uh, they generally cross over the skin, but nobody has uh, actually done the pharmacokinetics on it. So when we look at the delivery and the nature of uh, delivering cannabis, the uh, smoking behaviors, large puff volume, uh, big inhalation depth followed by breath holding are uh, what delivers uh, when using an inhaled product. 
uh, when vaporized, you actually get similar uh, THC levels as uh, smoking a cigarette uh, with a decrease in the burn compounds and the amount of carbon monoxide that the inhaler is going to get in. Pipes generally give a higher THC level than cigarette forms due to lower uh, smoke loss. Sublingual and oral are going to be very similar in their absorption. Uh, and uh, once again, they have those variable onset times. And then, as I mentioned, you really get uh, quite a bit uh, more if you take it with food for this maximal concentration of CBD, for example, increases about fivefold and the AUC around fourfold with a high fat meal as opposed to the fasted state. Uh, the average um, individual needs a two to three milligrams of THC to uh, result in a high or a, a intoxication effect. Oral dose is going to be, be somewhere between three and five times that amount. Uh, and that's once again due to the degradation and first pass metabolism. The uh, Oregon recreational products um, are aimed at five milligrams per dose. So if you think about five milligrams, uh, oral is about one and a half to two um, uh, inhale, so the and that kind of where that derived from. However, you look at other states, and uh, if somebody is buying something out of state, you can using Colorado as an example, you can find quite uh, different doses available. If you're trying to um, actually calculate the dose the patient is taking, uh, uh, if you look at the packaging of the edibles, uh, the packaging is going to read similar to a food product, um, in that it'll have like the most to the least common uh, ingredient. Um, and then the, they will actually have percents or milligrams, uh, and then you would just look at the how much they used and uh, calculate that out. Same for the smoke product, you'll find a percent of THC usually, and then sometimes some of them will have a complete profile of the terpenes and other products on there as well. It varies by uh, distributor. These are um, really, um, extensively metabolized in the liver. Uh, Delta-9 THC is primarily via CYP2C uh, profile. Uh, the THC in um, liver is actually metabolized to 11-hydroxy THC, which is uh, four to five times more potent psychoactively uh, than the uh, parent form. And so if you think about it, if you have a first pass through the liver, uh, ingested is actually going to give a, a higher rates of intoxication, though um, delayed onset. And this has actually been a problem with some individuals where they um, stacked, so to speak. They took a took a dose, they didn't feel the effect. They took another dose um, too too rapidly, ended up having um, um, quite uh, hallucinatory events. Uh, there's actually been one, at least one death uh, associated with this, where someone hallucinated and stepped off a balcony. Uh, CBD is, however, is primarily a CYP3A4 and 2C19 um, metabolized with some in the also the UGT enzymes. Uh, much longer half-life, somewhere between 56 and 61 hours, as opposed to the um, uh, 3 to 8 that we saw with THC in the, in the earlier um, table. And uh, if you ha have a liver compromise, uh, these are going to have delayed clearance. This is really a, a fecal excretion, uh, much greater than urine. And so if somebody actually has renal failure, including uh, being on dialysis, their dose is going to be the same as someone uh, with normal kidney function. Uh, this is a table that's been kind of been put together over the last several years. And uh, the bottom, and, and I have to say that many of the sources are um, nuanced. And so we kind of do our best as we can to put it together. 
but uh, if you look at the different compounds, whether it be THC, CBD, CBN, uh, dronabinol, nabilone, there's variability in each of these as far as which SIP system they are going to impact. And uh, you, you really have to take it one by one, and it's somewhat of a guess um, with the natural marijuana products, as, you, um, as I, I'm going to point out with the products here coming up. Dynamic interactions, though, um, THC actually diminishes the effect of CBD. CBD tends to decrease uh, THC psychoactive effects, but um, we're also seeing some contradictory data there, and it could be due to the formulation of some of the um, quote-unquote CBD products having uh, additional uh, cannabinoids in them, not being uh, pure CBD. It's still kind of being worked out. If there is a, another sedating agent on board, whether that be a hypnotic or an antihistamine or an anti-anxiety agent, um, these will generally uh, augment that effect. Whereas if somebody's on a stimulant, say for ADHD, for example, um, it's going to oppose that effect. The psychiatric drugs uh, and uh, lithium are have variable effects and they're not always predictable. If we look at the uh, prescription cannabis products, we have dronabinol, which is a synthetic Delta 9 THC and sesame oil. Uh, it activates both the CB1 and CB2 receptor with similar affinity, um, but uh, efficacy is gonna be less at the CB2. We don't actually know what it does to the immune system. Uh, Nabilone, which is rarely used in the US, uh, is also a THC mimic. It's another synthetic product that hits both receptors. And then we have cannabidiol, um, in the form of uh, Epidiolex, which is a purified uh, can uh, cannabidiol from plants, a single cultivar. Um, it's been standardized to 100 milligram per mil, and uh, it's an or comes as an oral solution. I think, I think it's like strawberry flavored, and once again, it really doesn't impact the CBD re receptors, CB receptors. So when we look at cannabidiol, this is uh, by definition in the U.S. Uh, hemp derived. Uh, with a maximum of 0.3% THC. Uh, if you look out there at the marijuana-derived uh, cannabidiol, you'll find uh, quite variable THC. Uh, if you look at Epidiolex, um, this is actually a low THC cultivar, which is generally less than 0.1%, uh, not standardized for terpenes or flavonoids. All of these uh, are coming from different cultivars of canna cannabis sativa um, and can be variable in other content other than THC. And uh, the uh, CBD is going to be characterized in milligrams. So if we look at common uh, cannabis preps, uh, there's uh, marijuana, which uh, while it is available in leaves and stems, they're mostly selling flowers, also called bud. Uh, hashish is going to be a resin, uh, sometimes coming as a cake not so widely used as it was um, uh, before it was being legalized for uh, recreational use. Uh, tincture is a different, um, we're used to hearing the word tincture pharmaceutically and have it having an alcohol diluent when we get tincture of a paragoric or something like that. However, any liquid infused with cannabinoid, whether that be uh, soda pop or um, uh, some, some other uh, flavored drink, um, is considered a tincture. So there shouldn't, and there actually shouldn't be alcohol uh, um, if it has THC in it. Um, oil um, have been extracted from the plant with many different solvents. Um, CO2 is becoming the industry solvent of choice. 
Um, it's not explosive as butane, ethanol, and propane are, so um, there's less likely to be an industrial accident. And also, it doesn't leave um, uh, organic residues. Um, so, the, so you'll find that CO2 extracted oils are the ones that are most commonly seen out there. Uh, infusions are cannabis plant material that's been mixed with a non-volatile solvent. So this is the butter, cooking oil, and other things that are used to make uh, cannabis edibles. And these edibles come in a wide variety of choices uh, from uh, cookies or brownies or something like that. There's uh, sodas uh, and other gummies and pretty much anything you can think of has been cooked into it, uh, into a cannabis edible. The hemp products are once again primarily providing CBD and they'll have variable THC content uh, depending on where they're grown. Since these are natural products, there is uh, a lot of question around purity and content. So herbicides and pesticides, while Oregon tests for these, it's, uh, I don't know that every lot uh, or, and actually in Washington has a similar policy, is, is tested. Uh, potency uh, is THC and other cannabinoid content uh, are tested for as the grower or manufacturer um, is looking for, but it's mostly just THC and CBD that are shown. About uh, half of these products or more are going to be mislabeled. And once again, I have some things coming up for that. When we get down to it, if we're going to use it as a medicinal, uh, the medical dose for any condition currently is unknown. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, what's been done to look at that. Uh, uh, this is a, one of two JAMA papers I have for you. This was a cannabis edible. 75 products were, uh, these were bought from dispensaries. And they looked at uh, THC and CBD content per assay. And about one in five, 17%, were accurately labeled. Uh, about a quarter were underlabeled, uh, meaning they had more in it than uh, were on the label. And about 60% were overlabeled, meaning they had less in it than was on the label. If you look at the THC to CBD ratio, they um, much as 36 to 1, uh, 36 THC to 1 CBD, and it went down to one product which had a 1 to 1 ratio, which is similar. Uh, to some that are used medicinally. Uh, it is uh, important that uh, all of these have child-resistant packaging. If we look just at cannabidiol, which had grown uh, rapidly in popularity as it became available in, in many states, um, whether it was oil, tincture, or a vaporization liquid, uh, the, uh, those accurately labeled uh, varied pretty widely. And once again, there's a tendency towards over-labeling um, or on or under labeling. So it's the, and these are, um, these were all bought over a one month period. They sent to an independent lab and they were bought from the internet. So it's uh, recommended that if um, a patient is going to purchase, that they actually stick with a local dispensary, which is probably going to have a more reliable uh, supply, especially if they stay with a single brand. It is notable that uh, though cannabidiol is supposed to have less than 0.3% THC. Some of them had really um, pretty significant amounts you know, of THC in, in the uh, uh, CBD, though it wasn't, it wasn't labeled as such. So the medical use of cannabis um, it is uh, really uh, aimed around uh, what the cannabinoid system does and there's mainly four groups of psychological effects. You see affective, so euphoria or easy laughter. So kind of, these are the typical uh, cannabis uh, highs that, that are sought. 
uh, sensory, so you see some uh, temporal and spatial perception alteration, some disorientation. This is pretty common. You do see drowsiness, dizziness, and a change in motor coordination. And then uh, nobody's going to think more clearly on uh, on cannabis. So confusion, uh, short-term memory lapses especially, and then changes in concentration are common. When we think about the potential uses, the things that have been aimed at and appear to be uh, best um, supported by anecdote that is out there and, this, and the limited studies um, are pain management, uh, benefit for nausea, uh, appetite uh, uh, boosting, so for anorexia cachexia, and their seizures uh, with the new epidiolex uh, in the pediatric seizure disorders, and then muscle spasms. Uh, while these other um, uses are out there and they vary state by state, they really aren't, um, aren't well uh, supported at this time and it's uh, clearly on, under clinical trial. Going to focus on uh, um, analgesia and the use around them with cannabinoids. And this uh, statement here from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine 2017, sorry. Um, they, this, was a, this was a consensus, four to one, uh, voted that it was beneficial in uh, chronic pain. Uh, they, they, were, they were more um, in agreement on antiemetics and multiple sclerosis sim assist symptoms. Uh, so they felt that basically there was moderate evidence for cannabinoids um, in a variety of different disorders. If we then look at a meta-analysis, this is a 2015 meta-analysis, and there were a bunch of them that kind of came out in that time. There were around 6,500 citations in Medline at that point, and uh, there were, they came up with 28 different uh, pain studies. Um, if you look at this, some were um, for nausea, some were chronic pain, spasticity, various other things. Uh, the ones that were interested in uh, used uh, nabiximols, nabilone, smoke THC, and a variety of other products. Um, there were um, half of these are about half of them are parallel, about half of them crossed over. And if you look at the odds ratio here, um, there are some that, that indicate that there was benefit seen uh, in uh, improvement of um, cannabinoid over placebo. And uh, th there's one here that looked at about 0.9 uh, gram cigarettes three times a day as their dose. Uh, and they saw reductions in pain in maybe by a third compared to about um, one in five or six when you look at by placebo. This is a meta-analysis and uh, it was confounded. I mean, if you look at it, uh, there are a lot of different products that were used. The evidence is, if anything, moderate quality. And uh, the uh, thought is that uh, neuropathic pain or maybe uh, cancer pain was going to benefit. However, these are all short study length. They used a variety of outcome measures. They were not blinded. Oops, things are moving on me again. Um, they're, they're not blinded. And uh, uh, crossover trials were actually not included in the analysis, just the uh, parallel um, uh, designs. If we fast forward to last year, uh, there were actually three or four different meta-analysis came, came out last year. If you look at Medline, uh, there's around 13,000 articles, so it's almost doubled since 2015. Uh, and this, in the, under a little more stringent criteria, there were 54 of those 13,000 that were el eligible for review, um, and uh, 39 met full criteria, 
And uh, on pain, uh, you looked at neuropathic, nociceptive, and cancer pain. All of these, once again, are confounded by small sample sizes, short duration of follow-up, high attrition rates, and uh, patients uh, had to have st stable pain scores. So maybe not the worst, uh, patients with the worst types of pain and actually to be uh, reviewed on these uh, studies. So bottom line is uh, there aren't valid studies out there that I could present to you today. I couldn't actually select one uh, because uh, there's nothing that actually compares different types of medical cannabis head to head, and there's nothing with long-term pain control um, with the medical cannabis. If you look uh, deeply into that and, and kind of parse it out, the number needed to treat for benefit when you look across these many trials is somewhere between three and 20. The benefits that are seen are more likely in chronic non-cancer pain. They seem to benefit those with fibromyalgia, non-chemotherapy-induced uh, neuropathic pain, cancer-related pain, and then rheumatoid disease. And if you think, once again, back to the 1800s, uh, rheumatic diseases was one of, one of the uh, uses. Uh, oddly, though, when we, even though we see uh, signal in neuropathic pain, diabetic neuropathy has really inconsistent results. So while it's not chemo neuropathy and it's not diabetic, other types of neuropathic pain seem, seem to benefit in some way. Other benefits that have been seen is an improvement in sleep quality. And this is uh, something that anecdotally many individuals use it for. There, when you look at the uh, assessment of pain control on the scales, uh, most of them have a one to one and a half point decrease when you see the those that look to, uh, to have benefit. And uh, some people, so about one in four, will have a greater uh, decrease in their pain score. And when you look at the products that are inducing these results, it's really the pharmaceuticals, uh, nabiximols, which is a one-to-one -one CBD to THC ratio, and then dronabinol, which is the synthetic uh, THC product that's available in the U.S. Nabiximols is um, available in about eight different countries currently and is a uh, phase three trials in the U.S. for multiple sclerosis uh, spasticity. The other thing that uh, prior to the pandemic was a lot in the news was should opioids uh, be replaced with cannabis for pain? And there was uh, these uh, state level epidemiologic re uh, reports that were suggesting lower overdose, overdose deaths in states that legalize cannabis. And these, these are once again, uh, big reports. Uh, when you actually drill down and we had been kind of waiting for those to see, there was one prospective four-year cohort study with around 1,500 individuals, chronic non-cancer pain, and they uh, were using, uh, looking at concomitant cannabis use with opioids. And uh, what came out is those that used cannabis had more subsequent pain, less self-efficacy in managing their pain, and actually did not decrease their prescribed opioid use. So the bottom line is even though there's, there's this epidemiologic stuff, um, when you look at the individuals, they don't really appear to be helped. And so we're not, um, uh, and I, I don't think anybody is actually supporting, you uh, know, um, evidence-based way, the replacement of opioids with cannabis at this point in time. Uh, Canada has moved forward with a, um, a adoption of medical uh, cannabis and actually is currently putting out the best guidelines that are out there. And uh, I'm throwing these out because uh, the anecdote is so strong that no matter what uh, the evidence says, you're going to have patients that are using cannabis products. So their guidance is you start low and you go slow because there's a U-shaped curve. 
Um, initially, uh, as they start at low doses, they see benefit and depending on what they're using it for, whether that be sleep or pain or nausea or appetite. As they uh, increase their dose, you get into the bottom of the U and they uh, have a have a kind of an ongoing uh, benefit usually. If you keep increasing the dose after that, then you see, see a sharp uptick in side effects, adverse side effects. So generally their goal is um, a starting dose of around two and a half milligrams. This is all oral of THC content and everything is based on C THC. They are not looking at the mixtures of THC, CBD and other uh, cannabinoids. Five milligram uh, is considered a moderate uh, dose. Ten is strong. Anything that is um, 15 or higher sees an increased risk for adverse effects. And for the treatment of pain, they suggest 25 be the ceiling dose. That you don't, if you're going up any higher for pain management, that you are, you're all you're going to really get is adverse effects without um, additional uh, analgesia. I tried to find a, a threshold dose for CBD, and there actually isn't one. The the dose with the epidiolex for seizures is well uh, documented, um, which is somewhere between five and 20 milligram per kilo. Uh, but uh, for any other use, there is currently not a, a, a recommended dose, and you'll see pretty widespread dosing for the things that are used out there. With that, I was going to look into, so if we're going to use it and people are using it, uh, what, what do we see as far as effects, um, adverse effects? When we look at a hard drug versus a soft drug, a hard drug being things like heroin, um, this is a soft drug. It's less addictive, uh, it's less dangerous because uh, you almost it's almost impossible to overdose and die from too much cannabis on board. Uh, the if you hallucinate or something, they you could it result in a death, but it's not uh, directly related to uh, loss of breathing like with heroin. The overdose risk for marijuana is uh, you'd have to literally eat about a bale of it, which is would be pretty tough. When we look at cannabis side effects, the really common things that happen, uh, uh, increases in anxiety, uh, confusion, uh, cough, this is really with smoked um, cannabis, uh, dizziness, drowsiness common as our fatigue, and actually nausea, depending on how they're taking it. Uh, blurred vision and headache, uh, certainly intoxication is the goal for many. And then rare things you see are some balance problems, changes in rhythm, um, hyperemesis, low blood pressure, um, psychosis, and uh, if you then uh, quantitate these and put them side by side with the commercial products, dronabinol, nabilone, and cannabidiol in the form of epidiolex, and compare them to um, cannabis, smoked marijuana, or something similar, you see that there's a pretty different um, effects as we start to parse out um, something that is a specific cannabinoid uh, versus these mixes. And if you look at cannabidiol at high doses as used in epidiolex, it's actually an appetite um, inhibitant as opposed to a stimulant. Um, it has uh, pretty high levels of diarrhea, which you don't see with uh, the THC mimics. So, um, but it has really no dizziness, which you see it quite commonly um, with whether it be marijuana or um, either of the THC mimics. So I, yeah, I thought it was really interesting to put these kind of in a in a table um, as we would compare uh, pharmaceuticals to see how they uh, add up. And I think as more and more of the different cannabinoids are um, pulled out and focused on as medicinals or whatever they're going to be used for, um, the, this would be an interesting way to compare them. 
So who should not be using cannabis? Uh, if we think about that, anybody with a, a psychiatric history, uh, we know that uh, those with schizophrenia tend to express more commonly and at an earlier age. Uh, those that are uh, pregnant or breastfeeding um, are going to be uh, transmitting it to the infant. And uh, uh, in the, we know that endocannabinoids are um, widely prevalent in the development of, um, um, of, of children. And then along with that is the, uh, should, it, should it 21 actually be the age of uh, use? Because the brain continues to develop somewhere around 25. Uh, so uh, I'm sure that's never going to change. It's certainly something to think about as we see younger people using it. And there's also more cannabis use disorders in young, younger individuals. And then uh, those with significant, significant cardiac, cardiac, uh, cardiac history um, should not be smoking this. Um, it's only with the smoke that you see the um, changes in blood pressure, the changes in heart uh, rhythms that, are, that have result in MIs in usually older individuals over the age of 60. Speaking of use disorders, uh, there is dependence that uh, has been seen. Uh, while it's considered non-addictive, especially when in, in check ingested, uh, there is with regular use, uh, dependence develops in somewhere between 9 and 10%. Uh, this is more common in the young user than the older user. Uh, if you compare that to nicotine, which is about uh, 32%, heroin, which is about 1 in 5, cocaine uh, or alcohol, which are um, alcohol more, cocaine similar, uh, there is a physio physiologic withdrawal after long-term use. Um, and uh, as far as what an abstinence syndrome looks like, uh, generally mild, uh, it's, uh, and it's only um, if they're regular users, but uh, irritability, insomnia is probably the most uh, common thing amongst them where they have sleep disturbances and really are not able to sleep uh, regularly or in a deep fashion. Um, restlessness, hot flashes, nausea and cramping. It's stored in adipose tissue, so it's excreted at a pretty low rate. Uh, if someone's actually doing urine testing uh, for a job or something on that order, if they are a regular user, it'll be there for um, weeks, uh, probably uh, easily out of uh, four to six weeks. So while we have a, this one to three day half-life, um, it can stay in the uh, adipose tissue for a much longer period. Driving and the uh, accidents around it are pretty consistent that it about doubles the rate of auto accidents. Uh, and this is not um, someone who is clearly drunk, as you would see with somebody who's in, ingesting alcohol. Uh, they um, will really not feel uh, impaired or, or anything. And what happens is they tend to um, overestimate, overestimate their impairment. They're driving carefully but they forget all the automatic functions of driving. So they're less likely to use a turn signal. They're less likely to hit the brake pedal when they see a flash of brake lights in front of them. The things that are um, normally uh, instinctive in the, in the experienced driver uh, seem to fall off with the use of cannabis. Uh, in, uh, there's a, there was a, a um, and this, this is whatever the country you're in, um, this is being seen. So there's a, Fran a French study. If you look at um, April 20th versus a week before or after, uh, April 20th is a um, kind of a cultural uh, cannabis day uh, in the United States. You see a much higher 12% uh, increase in fatal car crashes on that versus a week before or after. Uh, if you are um, driving in Colorado now and you rear-end somebody, they automatically check, check uh, to see if you have cannabis uh, in your system. Uh, 
Uh, and once again, it's a recognition of the loss of that automatic uh, safety things that you do when you drive. Hyperemesis syndrome is something that uh, was really either under-recognized or just not reported uh, prior to around 2004. Uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome is often confused with it because a lot of those with cyclic vomiting syndrome use cannabis in an attempt to control it. We don't know actually what's causing this hyperemesis syndrome, whether it's high THC plants or something else um, that is coming along with it, or maybe even in uh, pesticide or other impurities. Oops. Um, but if you look at uh, who, it's uh, generally median age is around 25, though a pretty broad range. Um, almost all of these are going to be daily cannabis users, and somewhere around 10 years from the start of use is when you see the onset occur. It, it is uh, it's, uh, six, uh, four to eight week cycles, um, and uh, there's a characteristic prodrome, there's the hyperemetic phase, and then there's a recovery phase, and this is thought to be possibly mated by enteric CB1 receptors. What's uh, pathognomonic here is that the relief is rapid and transient with a hot bath or a hot shower. And the, it appears to be temperature dependent, the hotter the better, to the point where um, individuals will take uh, a dozen, two dozen showers or, or stay in a hot tub all day. Uh, there's some, there's even a case or two of people who scalded themselves in an attempt to, um, to resolve this syndrome. Uh, resolution actually varies from hours to weeks. A lot of drugs have been tried in ED part departments or the occasional inpatient who's hospitalized for this. Uh, haloperidol, uh, capsaicin, apreptant may be beneficial, uh, but they're all uh, case report uh, level of evidence at this point in time. The only proven treatment is actually abstinence. And once they stop using, um, they you generally will see them get better. Um, if someone is in and they're not getting better, so um, the first thing we look for is whether somebody continues to bring them in cannabis products, and this has almost always been um, why they don't improve. So if, I, if we look at the take-home points here, um, from a risk standpoint, uh, it's unclear, uh, and I didn't really focus on this, but uh, whether um, lung cancer and vaping um, are thought to, uh, if you're smoking a cannabis cigarette or pipe, uh, that probably has similar risk for lung cancer as tobacco does. Uh, when vaping, you're thought to have a lower cancer risk uh, due to less inhaled uh, burnt products and other things that come with it. There is a cardiac risk in the elderly individual or those with uh, pre-existing cardiac disease, and that's really with inhaled cannabis, and they should stay away from that. If they have a psychiatric disorder, there's uh, certainly no clear benefit in any of them. Uh, there's harm likely in both schizophrenia and bipolar disease. Uh, with loss of control, uh, even if they are uh, continuing to use their medication. There is a dose-dependent relationship between exposure and psychosis and schizophrenia with uh, adolescents and young exposures uh, seeing this more commonly. Uh, and really less than 25, you could say, shouldn't it shouldn't be used as it is part of normal brain development. Uh, the endocannabinoid system is. While they're less habit-forming than nicotine and certainly the hard uh, drugs that are out there, um, the risk is real. Somewhere around 9% will have a cannabis use disorder, and this is more common in adolescents. Uh, we still don't know what uh, pregnancy or exposure um, in, the, in utero does. Uh, in those that have been born uh, to someone who's a regular cannabis user, uh, there tends to be some delay in ocular development. Uh, for, uh, the, 
children uh, don't seem to see normally uh, and that but that seems to normalize over the first weeks of life um, and if you follow these uh, children into uh, their teen ages uh, they tend to have uh, lower levels of achievement and maybe um, uh, when we think about academics uh, but there's no really randomized or controlled data that says that isn't just normal teen behavior um, so, so that, that is still unknown, but we're, the recommendation currently is to avoid during pregnancy or when breastfeeding. Uh, we really need uh, more studies in, in the higher risk subgroups, uh, older adults with chronic diseases that uh, can tell us whether there's a benefit or we're going to see more harm than benefit. The problem is it's really hard to find factual information no matter what you're looking for and that and the products that are out there are are unregulated uh, in any meaningful way uh, what they get at a dispensary is what uh, the man that uh, pr producer decided to make at that point in time and while there are some uh, really good uh, even pharma grade uh, producers out there it's quite mixed what will be in any uh, particular dispensary so the true medical benefits are unclear I think there are some clear areas of promise uh, with pain relief, especially neuropathic pain. This sh should be an active area of research. Uh, muscle disorders, I think we're going to see uh, um, nabiximols approved probably in the next one to two years for uh, multiple sclerosis spasticity. We already have the epidiolex for uh, seizure disorders. Appetite and nausea, uh, dronabinol has been widely used for this. Um, also, um, the uh, use of cannabis for those with appetite problems. It's uh, and actually HIV cachexia is an approved use of, of dronabinol. So this is, I think, going to continue to be an area of use. The one thing that you see when you talk, I've talked to um, actually many patient groups and uh, the mood is the most common uh, benefit that they see. They may not say that they have less symptoms. They may not say that they have um, a better I'm not positive, but I think if anybody has his phone number, I think that we can invite him and then he can just answer the phone and talk us through the rest, through the Q&A. Great. Uh, thank you to our audience for bearing with us here a moment. I think we I have his number. Um, let me, I thought it was my computer. Um, yeah, if you want to type it into the chat, then I'll invite him. Uh, let me see if I have it. Um, uh, I got to look it up on my email here really quick. Um, 
Thank you to the audience for bearing with us as we work on getting Dr. Bubalo back on audio. You may be able to reach him by phone to answer our questions. And I do see some questions that have started to come in. Um, One comment as to whether the age restriction for legal use to be increased to 25, given what we know about brain development, and I think we could see that um, somewhat addressed in Dr. Bubalo's presentation with regard to un unlikely um, to see a change in the legal age, but certainly concurs with the notion of some risk for use at age 25 or less. Um, I'm sorry, I have so many emails from him. I don't have his number, I gave him mine. He's actually in the chat now, and he just okay. uh, so he's going to give us his phone number. I think in just a sec. Okay. Great. I will go ahead and call Dr. Bubalo, and we will do uh, that by telephone. I am inviting him uh, into the meeting from phone. Pardon? Hello? Oh. Hello? Great, that's working. We can hear you again. Uh, when, when did you lose me? I'm so sorry. Just right before your uh, slide that asked if anybody had any questions. So we only uh, didn't hear you for the very last slide. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Uh, at least, at least the talk came through. Um, is there a question I can answer via phone? Great. Thanks, Dr. Bubalo, for bearing with us. Um, do you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Great. Um, so we already addressed a question related to um, age of use, uh, and I think you not acknowledged in your talk that certainly some risk for those particularly under age 25 but that we may be unlikely to see a change in the legal age. <clears throat> um, yeah, the, there, I'm sorry, go ahead. There were a couple of questions, um, particularly curious about topical use. Uh, earlier in your talk, you acknowledged that there's pretty limited data here, um, but any comments that you've had either with dosing or efficacy or safety concerns specifically for use of topicals? Yeah, currently there are no safety concerns. Um, we know that we know that it's absorbed. It does not, uh, there does not be enough absorbed uh, to cause an intoxication or change in um, coordination or anything like that. The efficacy is unclear uh, because if you look at the products that are out there, while many of them have CBD or a cannabis mix in them, there's also products that are starting to add methyl salicylate, things like, like Bengay and, and other compounds in there. So I think um, 
I, 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 there, we just don't know actually what the true benefit of a topical is. Whether and there's there isn't a, a good placebo-controlled study that I can reference at this point either. Pharmacokinetically, we uh, um, those we're still waiting on that data. Thank you um, for your thoughts there. Um, a quick question here with regard to whether there's a known tachyphylactic effect associated with cannabis product use. There's a clear tolerance to the side effects, and um, it's thought to be almost as much experience as anything else, uh, where someone gets used to the intoxication level. And it, um, but those those that are regular users, that are recreational users, do tend to notice that they have to go up over time a little bit in their dose to achieve the same level of intoxication or high as it's known. Uh, thank you. We have a comment here from someone online that I was not aware of saying there's evidence that marijuana use in hepatitis C is associated with increased fibrosis. Um, not sure if you have any ad additional comments there. Um, and I believe you already in your talk addressed the second part of the question, which was, are there other situations where marijuana use may be detrimental? And you did speak to some specific populations there in your talk, of course. Yeah, the, the hip, liver fibrosis would uh, be a really confounded thing. Uh, there's so many um, impurities in <sighs> cannabis products at this point in time that it would be hard to tell whether they got into a, a bad batch, so to speak, that um, even uh, earlier extraction techniques where you had all those organic residues left over um, would be suspect. So it would be you would have to really dive into what they were using and how they were using it. Um, uh, and I know Hep C users, similar to some HIV users, were using it for um, appetite stimulation and benefit. And so it, it it would be hard to determine whether it was cannabis or something else that actually caused that increased fibrosis. Great, thank you for that. Um, and then certainly we have seen, regardless of what is available for official guidance, um, certainly we have patients coming to us with questions or um, who are using themselves. Um, from a practical standpoint, um, any advice either for clinicians or for sharing with patients with regard to good sources of information or any guidance on dosing and formulations? Yeah, the dosing and formulation, um, we, so we don't recommend any inhaled form. I think all of those come with a, a lung cancer disease, pulmonary disease and lung cancer risk. Uh, which I can't, um, I can't see, um, given the unclear benefits, that it can ever, ever be uh, uh, recommended that way. So we suggest only using the oral edibles. Uh, the, the, and we, that, that dosing slide with the start low and go slow is where we go with that. The, um, the goal being that they have to recognize that you don't take a second dose for two to three hours um, after starting it. Um, and that you're going to have to um, have, a, have a regular place that you purchase it. Uh, we recommend a dispensary over the internet uh, and that they should uh, try to get the same brand. They have to recognize that they're doing kind of an N of one trial on themselves and that they, they will 
Um, some they have to recognize that if they have adverse events, they're going to be going back to the bud tender, <laughs> who who is their their uh, advisor at any dispensary, um, and um, seeing if they can get something that has a has a lower potential for those side effects. Uh, some in the uh, cannabis industry have actually started uh, putting colors on them, so they'll be like um, a blue color, a red color, purple color, and the colors the the hotter the color, the more likely there is to be intoxication. The, the more um, subtle the color, like blues and purples, um, they're, they're less likely to be intoxicated and more likely to achieve other benefits. Um, <clears throat> so there isn't um, standard advice other than don't use inhaled and uh, consider um, the, the dose that you're getting. And with, with uh, we never say, uh, actually 10 milligrams of THC is probably as high as we would recommend going. Um, the other kind of milieu that's there, the terpenes, the flavonoids, are, are still yet to be characterized, but uh, some ex very experienced users will, will seek out certain levels of those as well. Um, bottom line to the questioner is, is the, the start low, go slow, oral only, and they have to um, be aware that they're, uh, they shouldn't drive and uh, um, keep away from children and pets. Great, thank you. It's extremely helpful. Um, and you did note that in your comments now and in the Canadian guidelines, um, the specific dosing is for the THC component and does not exist in the same way for the CBD component. Um, can you remind us of any rule of thumb there with regard to, to dosing of what might be a start low and go slow for the CBD component? So CBD has mostly been dosed per kilo. So in the adult, I would think a 25 to 50 milligram dose would be a reasonable starting area. The, the concern there is um, how, how pure of a CBD pro product it is because a lot of them will be adulterated with THC. And if they have a significant amount of THC, they, you're, they're at risk for a, um, an adverse high or intoxication event. So I would I would actually go pretty pretty low, probably 25 milligrams or less for the initial dose. Um, try to stay with the same lot and product, uh, and also the uh, thing, advice we've given for many years with natural products is they have to have a goal on what they want to achieve from the therapy. So if it's pain relief, um, do they have a an, uh, uh, some kind of measure that they will look at? and, and uh, say, if my pain is not better, I'm going to quit using this. Or if I'm not able to you know, walk the dog or do uh, household chores or whatever it is that is my goal that this is helping me do, um, really to, to think about that and, and be as objective as they can, uh, whether they achieve their goal or not. Great, thank you. An extremely helpful comment to end in, applicable to cannabis and so many other treatments, um, what goal do we have in mind? We are just coming up on the top of the hour at nine o'clock. Thanks for everybody's patience, yours in particular, Dr. Bubalo, with bearing with the technology and answering questions by phone. Um, we will see you next week. Have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate your help. Thank you, Dr. Bubalo. Have a good day, everybody.